this is very personal to me. I've lived a hell of a long time, and I've gone through a lot of presidents, and this is the first one that is trying to destroy the Constitution. You tell him, Norma. We'll see how it goes. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nobody. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Fairmont, West Virginia on WEFR, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today on, well, another historic day in these United States. Out here, in case you're wondering, California, the sun has finally returned. So Desi Doyle, we can get on from the historic rainfall back to the next five-year drought. <laughs> oh, goody. Uh, that was Norma Anderson that you heard at the top of the show here uh, outside the U.S. Supreme Court on Thursday after oral argument in Trump v. Anderson. Norma Anderson is the 91-year-old Colorado Republican. She was the former majority leader of both chambers of the state legislature, and she successfully sued, along with a number of other Republicans, some of whom actually voted for Trump in 2020, and some independent voters in hopes of keeping Trump off the ballot under the U.S. Constitution's Insurrection Disqualification Clause. At least Anderson and the other plaintiffs were successful at the Colorado Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court? Well, that may turn out to be another matter. Now, we began reporting on Donald J. Trump's potential disqualification uh, from the ballot in 2024 under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment way back in early 2022, when our constitutional law friends at freespeechforpeople.org first began raising concerns about candidates who had previously sworn an oath to office being disqualified from serving after having, quote, engaged in insurrection or, quote, having given aid or comfort to enemies of the Constitution. Back then, back in early 22, people seemed to think that it was some obscure section of the Constitution, 
adopted after the Civil War to apply to Confederates only to keep them out of office. So you could somehow safely and simply ignore the text of what the Constitution actually says and in uh, uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Because, you know, it was all so long ago, it was so rarely used since the 1870s that it didn't apply here. Well, on Thursday at the U.S. Supreme Court, we learned that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, while it may be obscure, it has now very much come into play in the 2024 election, following Donald Trump having, in fact, engaged in insurrection on January 6th of 2021, as determined by bipartisan majorities in both chambers of Congress. But to the direct point of oral argument on Thursday before the U.S. Supreme Court, the Colorado Supreme Court late last year determined that, yes, Donald Trump is disqualified because he did engage in insurrection in violation of 14.3 of the U.S. Constitution. And in turn, the Colorado court ruled he is barred from the 2024 ballot in the state, even as they stayed their own ruling pending a final decision on this matter from the U.S. Supreme Court, where arguments were heard from both sides on Thursday. The Colorado court's ruling was grounded in what uh, modern-day so-called conservative jurists have described as textualism. What, what do the words of the Constitution and law actually say? And originalism. What was the intent originally of the founders when they initially adopted the constitutional provision? The Colorado court spoke to both of those matters in their uh, in their uh, decision and persuasively argued back in December, ruling that the text of the amendment was quite clear and easy to understand and that the founders purpose, their reason for drafting the amendment was to prevent those who, having previously sworn an oath to protect the United States and then subsequently engaged in insurrection against it, as was the case with former officeholders who then joined the Confederacy, that those folks could not hold future office at the state or federal level, any office, as specified in the text of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, including, quote, senators or representatives in Congress or electors of president and vice president or, and this is a direct quote, any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state. Now, though the clause also notes that, quote, Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such a disability. In other words, Congress does have the power to waive the disqualification for such an insurrectionist, if they wish. The majority of the uh, Supreme Court uh, the U.S. Supreme Court on Thursday, three of them, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, appointed by Donald Trump himself, and one of them, Justice Thomas, married to a woman who arguably participated in the January effort to uh, January 6th effort to keep Trump in power despite the will of the voters. The majority of the court seems skeptical of the arguments on Thursday offered by uh, the Colorado attorney and the Colorado solicitor general during the nearly two hours of oral argument. But even the court's Democratic appointees seemed dubious. For example, Justice Elena Kagan was among several justices who wanted to know, quote, why a single state should decide who gets to be the president. 
even though allowing Colorado to determine who will be on their own ballot and how the state will determine which electors will be chosen by the people does not necessarily give that single state the power to decide who gets to be the president. In any event, the justices spent little time discussing whether Trump actually engaged in insurrection following the 2020 election, suggesting that their ruling may not even get as far as that matter. Rather, they may strike down Colorado's decision based merely on the fact that states do not have the power to decide if a candidate is disqualified under Section 3, as opposed to their ability to disqualify a candidate because they don't meet constitutional age or citizenship requirements. Apparently that's fine, but disqualifying under Section 3? That appears to be a different matter. Why may they determine those qualifications, but not the ones under 14.3? Well, that was not very clear to me from the uh, course of Thursday's oral argument, but many of the justices seemed to feel that there was something different about this particular qualification. As Justice Gorsuch noted at one point, uh, those other disabilities, like age and citizenship, can't be removed with a waiver by Congress, though The uh, Colorado attorneys noted in response that though Congress has extraordinary power to waive this particular disability, that does not make the disability go away. If Trump was appointed by to be a judge right now, he argued he uh, he could not hold the office, which shows that he has that disability right now. But somehow the office of the president is being treated differently by the high court. Late in the arguments, Justice Kavanaugh wondered if, well, never mind the Constitution and what it actually says, never mind the conservative textualist interpretation of the clause or the originalist meaning of why it was adopted, shouldn't the people, the voters, be the ones who get to decide who they want for president despite what the qualifications are specified as by the Constitution? In trying to figure out what Section 3 means, and kind of to the extent it's elusive language or vague language. What about the idea that um, we should think about democracy, think about the right of the people to elect uh, candidates of their choice, uh, of letting the people decide? Because your position has the effect of disenfranchising uh, voters to a significant degree. And should that be something, does that come in when we think about should we read Section 3 this way or read it that way? What about the background principle, if you agree, of democracy? I'd like to make three points on that, Justice Kavanaugh. The first is that constitutional safeguards are for the purpose of safeguarding our democracy, not just for the next election cycle, but for generations to come. And and second, Section 3 is designed to protect our democracy in that very way. The framers of Section 3 knew from painful experience that those who had violently broken their oaths to the Constitution couldn't be trusted to hold power again because they could dismantle our constitutional democracy from within. And so they created a democratic safety valve. President Trump can go ask Congress to give him amnesty by a two-thirds vote. But unless he does that, our Constitution protects us from insurrectionists. And third, this case illustrates the danger of refusing to apply Section 3 as written Because the reason we're here is that President Trump tried to disenfranchise 80 million Americans who voted against him, and the Constitution doesn't require that he be given another chance. By the way, it's not elusive or vague language, Justice Kavanaugh, unless you, for some reason, want it to be. 
Following Thursday's oral argument, Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold underscored the solemnity of this matter in a, her statement, uh, noting, quote, January 6th was one of the darkest days in our nation's history. Donald Trump incited an insurrection and attempted to steal the presidency from the American people. She added, quote, I hope the U.S. Supreme Court upholds Colorado's constitutional right to bar oath-breaking insurrectionists from our presidential primary ballot. Our nation deserves to know whether an insurrectionist may hold the country's highest office. Well, I have a feeling we will know soon enough as the court is expected to issue its opinion on this matter in fairly short order, given the expedited matter in which they took it up and heard this case in about a month's time, as voters are already voting in the 2024 presidential primary elections. We're joined today by two of the folks who joined us earlier this year, just after Team Trump had filed their petition to uh, SCOTUS. I wanted to check back in with them following Thursday's oral arguments in the case for Insight Here. Lisa Graves is now the executive director of TrueNorthResearch.org and was formerly deputy assistant attorney general at the Justice Department. She was former chief counsel for nominations in the U.S. Senate and a former deputy chief for the Article Three Judges Division of the U.S. court system. Lisa Graves, welcome back. Thank you for joining us again today on the broadcast. Uh, thanks for having me on, Brad. Uh, and our friend Keith Barber is a recovering attorney and recovering lifelong Republican, at least until Trump came around. He still lives deep in Trump country, however, there down there in Florida, where he is now a frequent Daily Coast contributor on legal and constitutional matters and is simply known as uh, Keith D.B. over there. Welcome back, Keith Barber. Thank you, Brad. Good to be here again. Good to have you guys. Uh, listen, as as difficult as I realize it may be, do me a favor. Please hold off your uh, your vote counting and your opinions on that for the moment regarding which way the court may or may not go here, because I actually want to focus on the substance of the arguments, if I can, before we get to the politics of the arguments. Now, the Trump attorney, Jonathan Mitchell, uh, made, made sort of three basic arguments in support of striking down the Colorado uh, Supreme Court ruling that Trump engaged in insurrection and is therefore disqualified from the ballot under 14.3. Uh, to wit, Murray argued, one, that the president is not an officer of the United States, as cited by Section 3, uh, as to those who are disqualified by it. Two, uh, is that Section 3 is not self-executing, that Congress needs to write legislation in order to carry it out. And that 3, under Section 3, it says an insurrectionist may not hold office, but it doesn't say they may not run for office. Let me start with that third point, because as ridiculous as it sounds, and I think we talked about it last time you were on, it actually resonated with me as something that the justices might latch on to, uh, when I read uh, Trump's brief to the court, it sounds ridiculous on the surface. They can't hold office, but they can run for it. But their argument is that because Section 3 allows Congress to waive the insurrectionist disqualification by a two-thirds vote of both houses, that they still have the time to do that if he were to win the election in November before he is subsequently sworn into office next January. Lisa Graves, do I understand that argument correctly? And if so, your response to the argument, because I'm not sure that the attorney representing the um, 
while the Republican and independent Colorado voters adequately responded to it. You know, I think that, as, as we talked about the last time, this notion that uh, someone who's disqualified from, from office should be able to run, win, and then be basically affirmed in the, in the disqualification by Congress, is it's just uh, absurd. It's contrary to how the um, provision is written in the 14th Amendment. Um, if, if Trump wanted to avail himself of that opportunity to be undisqualified, he should have done so before he ran. Um, and he would have failed. Uh, there would be no such votes to undisqualify him. Um, but it really is an absurd argument. It's um, it's extreme. It doesn't surprise me in part coming from Trump or from uh, the attorney uh, who's representing him, Jonathan Mitchell, who's also the author of the um, so-called heartbeat bill in Texas, who's mm. you know been a longtime anti-abortion extremist in terms of trying to deny people their rights. Mm. But I just think this notion that um, because uh, because Congress could waive this disqualification, somehow it doesn't apply, doesn't apply now, um, uh, so that a whole election can take place and then have someone disqualified. It's just, um, you know, it's just absurd, I think. Um, but that doesn't mean that this court is not going, some of the members of the court will not accept that absurd argument in, in pursuit of their agenda. But, um, but it is, I think, an absurd and and, uh, you know, really um, counter plain language, common sense sort of mm -hmm. argument on face. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, it may be absurd, but that's the argument and they're sticking to it, it seems. Uh, Keith Barber, uh, it does also, in addition to being absurd, seems like a potential recipe for chaos as raised during this uh, this this colloquy between Justice Katanji Brown Jackson and Jason Murray on behalf of the Anderson petitioners. If we think that the states can't enforce this provision for whatever reason in this context, in the presidential context, what happens next in this case? I mean, are, are, is it done? If this court concludes that Colorado did not have the authority to exclude President Trump from the presidential ballot on procedural grounds, I think, I think this case would be done. but. I think it could come back with a vengeance because ultimately members of Congress w may have to make the, dis the determination after a presidential election if President Trump wins about whether or not he's disqualified from office and whether to count votes cast for him under the Electoral Count Reform Act. Uh, right. If they say that he can't run, but he uh, th that he can run, but he can't hold office. Keith Barber, wouldn't that allow Congress to also argue during the Electoral College certification on January 6th of 2025, if Trump wins, that Trump is still an insurrectionist, so he's still constitutionally disqualified from office under Section 3 if two-thirds of Congress doesn't waive that disability. Isn't this a recipe for disaster? Well, in fact, that is much more likely what will happen than is the possibility, you know, the, this unfounded speculation that Congress could do the reverse and grant Trump amnesty. The much more likely event is that challenges are raised in the electoral certification process mm -hmm. saying that Trump is not eligible for the office and that any electoral college votes for him must not be counted for that reason. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, you know, this was this was pointed out in an amicus brief um, by uh, three constitutional scholars and the chaos that could be founded by this. And they pointed out that, you know, Congress would actually say that Congress has already ruled 
that Trump is disqualified because both the House of Representatives mm-hmm. and the Senate, by majority votes, concluded that he had incited an insurrection yep. in the impeachment proceedings. Yep. Now, it wasn't enough to get the, you know, over the threshold to convict in the Senate, but it was 57 members of the Senate. Yeah. And, um, you know, in a strong majority of the House, similarly. So yep. they they would argue that we've already decided this. Congress has already ruled on this question of whether or not Trump engaged in an insurrection. Uh, Keith, talk to me about the argument that the presidency is not an officer under the United States, as described in Section 3. The office of the presidency is cited many times in other parts of the Constitution. Why is why is the president not an officer under the United States, but here only in Section 3, apparently? Uh, and, and it creates the perverse result that uh, Section 3 does not apply only to the highest officer in the land, uh, the president of the United States. And I guess what I found most disappointing about that argument was that it was one that Justice Jackson, um, you know, uh, the recent, most recent appointee by Biden, was was really enamored with. I mean, she seemed to really like that argument and, and repeatedly emphasized how, you know, Section 3 does not mention the president when it mentions other people. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, the argument seems to be that under the Constitution, the president appoints officers and therefore he can't be one. Uh, and you have, you know, similarly, members of Congress are not officers either because they're elected. And uh, and that's why members of you know, Congress is specifically mentioned in four as as 14.3 applying to it. Well, I would say that uh, members of Congress, senators and uh, senators and representatives uh, are officers of their own state, Uh, maybe officers of Congress, but they're, uh, you know, of their own state. Same with electors who are specifically named. But then you get to uh, any other. What is it? uh, You know, any office under the United States. And somehow that doesn't count. Uh, uh, Lisa. The um, Kataji Brown Jackson was, in fact, sort of embracing that argument. Rick Hassan, uh, UCLA election law attorney who actually was uh, had submitted an amici brief in this case, uh, he argues that Kataji Brown Jackson is making that case in order to avoid that chaos that could happen if Trump is elected and everyone begins arguing that he's an insurrectionist. If they remove president from the list of offices that are, uh, you know, that that must not be insurrectionist, I think the argument goes, well, then come January 6th, if Trump wins, we won't have chaos because they can't make the argument that he's uh, a, uh, an insurrectionist in, in sort of a grand bargain that he believes is underway at the Supreme Court. Your thoughts on that, Lisa? Well, any types of grand bargain, uh, they always concern me. Um, you know, I I don't think that I just think that this whole um, the, the argument today, in some ways, the way this has been covered by other outlets, is is somehow, um, in a way, sort of normalizing this notion that that a person who actively sought to, um, you know, in the in the in the words of that you quoted earlier, mm-hmm. sought to disenfranchise 80 million Americans mm-hmm. and steal the presidency. Um, should have any qualification to hold office or run for office, any office, uh, any office in the United States. And so um, I, 
you know, I hope there's not a grand bargain. I think it would be a disaster for our democracy. I have tremendous fear that if Trump were somehow to win, um, that that would be the last actual presidential election mm -hmm. we would have uh, in this country because he has demonstrated his antipathy to the rule of law, to any rules applying to him, including the Constitution, his oath, this idea that a person takes, uh, you know, a, a, in essence, a sacred oath to defend this Constitution from enemies, foreign and domestic, you know, it's just been uh, destroyed by his actions. And so um, I, you know, I understand the argument and I understand what Rick is saying. I respect him tremendously. I, you know, have uh, abiding respect for uh, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Mm -hmm. I just think this, like, this is about the law. And those, uh, the, the people who wrote that 14th Amendment, having survived uh, this civil war that lost, you know, that, that resulted in the loss of half a million Americans' lives, who saw how popular, in essence, how popular that secessionist movement was in those states. They knew that those uh, members could have run for office and won, mm -hmm. won uh, one office, including possibly the presidency, um, based on how popular those secessionists were, those racist, slaveholding, slave-justifying um, policymakers were. And they sought to prevent that from ever happening, not just in the elections following 1865 immediately, yeah. but forever. And they provided one mechanism, one mechanism to get around this, which is that a supermajority of Congress could remove this disqualification. I'm sure under the belief that there would never be such a supermajority, and there is not, as you point out, and as others have pointed out in the brief, there is not a supermajority in favor of removing this disqualification. In fact, there's the opposite. A majority of members who have who understand that he did uh, in, engage in insurrection and mm -hmm. violate his oath. And so, you know, I hope there's not a grand bargain. It would be a devastating to our democracy for, for there to be such a bargain well, that would allow someone to take office who has uh, who has absolutely trampled on our Constitution. And I want to be clear, uh, Rick Hatson was not necessarily <clears throat> not necessarily supporting that uh, uh, position. He was sort of explaining it and it sort of works. Uh, that they would uh, reject the Colorado argument here, and yet they would allow the immunity ruling from the D.C. Court of Appeals to stand. That's all part of the grand bargain. He wasn't necessarily supporting it. But, I, you know, I, I hope that we're not covering it the way the others uh, you, you cite, um, Lisa Graves, are, because I, this why I wanted to focus on the substance here before we get into the politics of what they're actually going to do. And I think I shared this the last time you guys were on, but since the Colorado attorneys did not seem to bother to do so at SCOTUS today, I think I need to share it again. This comes from, again, our friends at Free Speech for People, their uh, myths and realities about 14.3. They note uh, Senator Reverdy Johnson was worried that the final version of Section 3 did not include the office of the presidency. He stated so during the debate on, on the amendment, he said, quote, this amendment does not go far enough because past rebels may be elected president or vice president. So he asked, why did you exclude them? Senator Lott Morrell fielded this objection. He replied, and this is all according to the congressional record. He said, quote, let me call the senator's attention to the words or hold any office, civil or military under the United States. That answer satisfied Senator Johnson, who stated, uh, quote, perhaps I am wrong as to the exclusion from the presidency. No doubt I am. 
I mean, clearly, <laughs> yeah, yes. Hey, I, I definitely don't think you've been covering it in that way that normalizes it, just to be clear. I am so appreciative of your work to help focus on the substance and shine a light on it. And um, and that exchange, that colloquy about the meaning of the of the of section three of Purdue could not be clearer right. in the intent of the drafters, which is something that, as you pointed out at the outset, these supposed originalists, these supposed strict constructionalists, yep. Uh, yep. you know, claim to be so devoted to when striking down um, access to abortion and and threatening to strike down uh, marriage equality and threatening to destroy our ability to regulate corporations under the Chevron doctrine. But here, suddenly, they're confused in, you know, Kavanaugh's beer, I like beer voice, uh, <laughs> suggesting, you know, uh, this is somehow confusing to him. It's not confusing if you if you look at the history and and read the history like the the portion you've just quoted uh, yeah i mean it seems absolutely the conservative textualist original uh originalist meaning of what they wrote and we have evidence from the congressional record to prove it uh keith barber other parts of the 14th amendment for example the uh, requirement that all uh, must you know receive due process? That's section one of the Fourteenth Amendment. That seems to be self-executing. I mean, in other words, if all the laws written to help ensure uh, that you know we got due process, if they were taken away, we would still have the right to due process uh, under the Constitution. Uh, no, if, if that is the case, why is section three of the Fourteenth? so different than Section 1? Why does Section 3 require Congress to write a law before it can be used, at least against the president? Well, I, I think that in this case, it's because the Supreme Court needed it, needed it to be. Uh, and I don't have a better explanation than that. Um, it kind of goes to my, my belief, though, that the, the litigants in this case um, made a strategic error in how they approached it. I, I think that they should have compelled the court to address the question of whether or not Trump engaged in an insurrection. Uh, and they should have done so uh, rather than by rather than taking this state rights approach that Colorado mm -hmm. you know, could do this under our Constitution. I think they should have turned it on the head and said, under Section 3 of the Constitution, Colorado could could not have Trump on the ballot. That Section Three limits what Colorado can do and prevents Colorado from having his name on the ballot mm -hmm. because the state would be violating that provision if it did. And I, I think that that should have been their approach to this. Uh, and, yeah. and and then you know if the question comes up, well then are you saying? that no state can have Trump on the ballot, that the answer should have been absolutely, Your Honor, and that is what this court should rule. This court should find that Trump engaged in an insurrection and is barred from the ballot everywhere. Well, that's and what Colorado I think that's found. The approach they should take. That Colorado found that very clearly. I mean, they went through step by step by step why they believe that he engaged in insurrection. Uh, you know, in one sense, it seems like it, it, it wasn't brought up because it, it was almost taken for granted that they made the case in Colorado. Uh, Keith, uh, I got to do a break here uh, momentarily. But w what are the notion that uh, voters 
the voters should be allowed to decide, as uh, you heard uh, Justice Kavanaugh raise at the top, uh, that, that this shouldn't be a matter left up to the courts or secretary of state. What's your response to that? I don't get to decide to vote for somebody who's under 35. I don't get to decide to vote for somebody who's not a natural born citizen. I don't get to decide to vote for somebody that has already been elected to the presidency twice, even though I may feel like that's the best person. And you know what else I don't get to decide? I don't get to decide to vote for somebody who has been convicted by the Senate under an impeachment proceeding. And, you know, our right to vote for just anybody for president doesn't exist and never has existed. Mm. Uh, Lisa, let me raise a similar uh, point with you. You know, I don't I don't agree with the uh, with the with the principle necessarily. But the fact is, we have a constitution. It seems to me that we should be following it or changing it if we don't like it. It doesn't actually, you know, matter what I think, whether I think voters should be allowed to decide, whether any of us actually like what 14.3 says. It says what it says. We should follow it. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. And I just want to say I, I agree with every word that he said in the last two answers. They uh he could not be more right uh, about this this approach mm -hmm. and why the arguments are so flawed. And that, of course, goes to your point as well, Brad, which is, are we living under a constitution or not? It mm -hmm. seems we are only to the extent that this faction of the court uh, wants to impose it. And when it doesn't, it, it, it does not apply. Yep. And, um, you know, I think that's a very problematic place for us to be. That's not to say that the constitution is perfect. It has some deep flaws, some flaws that have become much more manifest over the last five years than we even previously, you know, understood um, the, the Constitution to be. But nevertheless, we live um, in a in a society that that says there's a commitment to the rule of law, and yet we have um, elevated these judges, these justices, to this vaunted place. Um, this notion that they, you know, are seriously puzzling over what to do. You know, I'm not sure. I'm convinced that that's even the case because I feel like they've behaved so cynically in so many ways that I just don't have confidence that they're going to. Um, actually evaluate this case on the merits and follow the law and follow the language of the, of the law, the Constitution. They sure are. Um, uh, they sure pick and choose when they decide to be textualist and originalist, don't they? And by the way, um, I, I, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I've said it many times that I think Nikki Haley will have an easier time uh, beating Joe Biden than Donald Trump will. Nonetheless, that doesn't matter. It says what it says. Uh, Keith Barber, Lisa Graves, i got to take a quick break here. We'll come back with uh, just a few more minutes and get your thoughts on, well, how it went today, what the court is probably going to do based on uh, what we heard from the U.S. Supreme Court and their oral argument in Trump v. Anderson on uh, Thursday, and maybe another question or two for you both. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with uh, Lisa Graves of truenorthresearch.org, former deputy assistant attorney general to these United States, and Keith Barber of dailycoast.com where he writes about legal and constitutional matters. Okay, guys. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to focus on the substance of the argument because everyone is immediately going to the to the politics of it and how the court is going to decide despite the substance of the matter. But uh, overall, uh, guys, let me start with Lisa Graves. Uh, and, and, and I know we always can't always determine how a justice, any justice is going to actually decide based on the questions that they ask at oral arguments. But what are your thoughts on the overall case based on the questions that you did hear from uh, asked by the uh, justices, Lisa Graves? Where is this uh uh, uh, opinion going. I am concerned that the court is going to do the wrong thing uh, by the language of the law and by uh, the historical record, and also for um, you know for the for the sake of our democracy in terms of putting us at at greater you know at grave risk actually. Mm. Um, but I also want to point out that you know one of the other astonishing features of the argument today was the fact that Clarence Thomas was even in the room. Thank you. He mm, yes. certainly, <laughs> certainly should have recused himself. Uh, if if his his uh, track record, if his wife's role in trying to foment this um, effort to overturn the election is not disqualifying, does not require recusal, nothing, nothing does. The, the, the so-called ethics code that uh, Roberts, you know, made a big PR gambit to announce uh, back in November to try to avoid a subpoenas for Leonard Leo and uh -huh. for Harlan Crow, the billionaire. Um, that announcement we knew at the time was a PR move and had no teeth to it that the um, that the so-called so ethics rules that he announced as always being in effect, um, that, that this was somehow uh, going to save us from this corrupt court. Obviously, it, it wasn't then, and this only makes it clearer when you have um, Thomas uh, still sitting on this case, hearing this case, participating in this case, in fact, uh, in an unusual way, given his typical silence, asking questions in this case, um, basically as, as being very assertive and arrogant about his 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 lack of willingness to recuse himself in a case where he's manifestly disqualified because his presence in the case, uh, be, because of Jenny's role in trying to get Mark Meadows to help get that election overturned, to disenfranchise, disenfranchise 80 million uh, American voters and more. The fact that he would sit on the case and and also um, uh, participate in that oral argument, participate in the decision to come, um, it's just a slap in the face to the notion that this court has any ethical bounds whatsoever. Can I go even further here, uh, just very quickly, because we are short on time? But um, uh, and I don't know that uh, the, the numbers here, because they may be, uh, you know, voting to um, strike down the Colorado ruling no matter what. It could be unanimous potentially. But what I'm going to go even further. What about the three justices who are not named Thomas, who are sitting on the bench? They owe their lifetime appointments to Donald Trump. That would be Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett. If the person coming before them in any other case was, uh, you know, a boss who had hired them at a law firm, let's say, wouldn't they recuse in such a case? If so, why would the three who were given a lifetime appointment by Donald Trump not recuse themselves in, in this case, uh, Lisa? Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that I recall from, I think it might have been Kagan's nomination, was this effort to get her to commit to um, recusing herself from the affirmative action cases. I think if they were coming up to her at the time, that might have been 
one of the issues that uh, was that mm-hmm. she was working on at the Justice Department. It's not the same, but this idea of you know um, how long between the time of your appointment and um, uh, I guess a, a recusal situation with someone who chose you for a job, the most important job of your career. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, you know, is there any time period? Maybe it's not forever, but maybe um, maybe in the near term, you should recuse yourself from hearing a case where you owe your office to that person. And in fact, as we've seen Donald Trump remark, he believes they owe him that allegiance. They owe him yes. that. This is not a policy yeah. issue, you know, oh, it's Obama's policy. This is, you know, the, the, the future of the actual guy. The actual guy is, if I have no idea. Yes, Thomas should absolutely recuse, but it seems to me so should Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and, and Barrett. Dad, you had a, a I had two things. So, first yeah. of all, I don't remember from, you know, Nixon and the Supreme Court at that point, did any of the justices recuse that were appointed by Nixon at mm. that point? I don't know that answer. But my other... A uh, question about this was that it did seem to me that the justices were focusing not so much on the text of the Constitution, which is what they say they care about, um, not so much on, you know, the history of how this has been applied, but really just pretty much only on the practical effect. Like, oh, well, you know, if we go ahead and uphold the Colorado ruling, what does that look like? Does that mean that all 50 states get to come up with their own answer on this? And gosh, wouldn't that just be chaos? So I found that Doesn't to be Doesn't sound like chaos surprising. to me. It sounds like states' rights that uh, Republicans are usually arguing in favor of. Right. But, you know, then they say, oh, he's on the ballot in only on, in red states and not in blue states. And that, you know, that seemed to be what they were most concerned right. about. So yeah. I can see why they were. It sounds like uh, justices like Jackson were trying to find a, a way through that minefield so that they don't have to disqualify him, like you were saying, with the potential grand bargain of saying, no, yeah. he is not immune. But, you know, hey, he can run on this other thing. Yeah, well. I don't think yeah, I mean, I, democracy I is a minefield, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Lisa. I can imagine a scenario in which someone is saying, uh, oh, well, you can't let these you can't have the, the Confederates disqualified from from northern states uh, right. and just have them be, you know, on southern, you know, secessionist mm. state ballots. Like I, the fact that they were so uh, this focus on this practical effect, but not, um, as you all pointed out earlier, the ultimate practical effect, which is total chaos on January 6th, yeah. um, if those votes aren't counted after people cast their vote yeah. and have, are invested in that vote, this idea that the practical effects are, are predominant is interesting to me for two reasons. One, the whole notion of justice, you know, the, the whole notion of justice through history as being blind. You know, mm-hmm. uh, justice, justice meaning not weighing, uh, not putting your thumb on the scale in favor of powerful people over people who have less power. This would be the ultimate sort of carve out, in essence, for Trump. And secondly, this idea that they're concerned about consequences now, but not for women whose whose lives are literally endangered by overturning Roe, you know, not for the, you know, our ability to contend with uh, our warming planet and all the climate chaos that's ensuing by striking down the EPA's ability to regulate uh, power plants and urge them to, you know, invest in more alternative energy. They don't care about the consequences then. But now when the consequence might be that one white guy who engaged in insurrection is denied office, yeah. um, that's somehow the biggest concern. We suddenly should be very concerned right. about those consequences. I'm not down with that. I hear you. Uh, I'm not down with that either. I've got uh, I got to get out here. But Keith Barber, uh, your uh, thoughts uh, in general overall uh, on how this uh, case is going to uh, be decided based on what you were able to the tea leaves you were able to read on Thursday. 
I, I think it will either be 8-1 or 9-0 in favor of Trump. I would say in terms of this chaos question uh, that had the court even entertained ruling, as I said they should, that Trump did engage in an, in an insurrection and is therefore off the ballot everywhere, mm-hmm. then no chaos. Boom. Uniformity achieved. Ah. Problem solved. Yep. yep. And that apparently was not even considered today, and I wish it had been. Lise Graves is the former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Justice Department. She is now the Executive Director of TrueNorthResearch.org. Keith Barber, oh, and her, where her work can be found, True North, TrueNorthResearch.org, and on the site still known as Twitter, at the Lisa Graves. Keith Barber can be found there as well. He is Keith DB, and his work can be found, or no, he's Keith DB80. There we go at uh, at Twitter, and uh, his work can also be found on a regular basis at DailyCoast.com. Thanks to both of you for joining us. I suspect we will be shouting in your direction as the uh, <laughs> legal nightmares continue <laughs> over this next year. Thank you, guys. Have a good one, Brad. Thanks. Thanks. And I'll tell you, the legal nightmares will continue. Yep. I I had uh, mentioned, I think it was at the end of the year that, you know, the Supreme Court could do themselves a favor. The justices could do themselves a favor by getting rid of this guy, by, as uh, Keith argued, you know, just declaring that, yes, in fact, uh, January 6th was an insurrection. That's it. Trump can't run. Clean the slate for everybody. Yeah, but it sure don't look like they want to do that. It does not. For whatever reason. And, you know, it, it is interesting that Elena Kagan, and uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson seemed to be reaching for reasons to go along with it. Yeah, it seemed like they shifted over the time of the hearing where the Colorado plaintiff's mm-hmm. lawyer didn't really press the case of, hey, it's an insurrection. The text of the Constitution is very clear. But like I said, they seemed to want to find a way out that would avoid what they perceived to be chaos, which I think was a, a really good argument brought by Trump's attorneys. Well, I don't think chaos will be avoided. That's the problem. The the way to avoid chaos is to get rid of the master of chaos, Donald Trump, prevent him from running. But, you know, we get to pick and choose which portions of the which portions of the Constitution are more important than other ones. That one. Oh, that's obscure. That's uh, surely they didn't mean that. Surely they meant it to apply to every single officer of the United States and every state except for the president of the United States. Yeah, that must have been what they were thinking, as long as you don't read the congressional record, which tells us otherwise. Yeah, so now we'll see if they'll vote uh, to say that Trump does not have absolute immunity and when they'll do that and what that means for the trials that would be coming up and whether they'll come up before the election or after the election. Although Rick Hassan over at Slate, as I mentioned, has that article about the grand bargain that, oh, they're going to you know let him run here, but they will turn him down for the uh, his, his immunity claims. As if that is some kind of a bargain. How about just tell the truth all the time and stick with that? And you don't have to make bargains with devils. Quick break, and we are back with, uh, oh, even on even on a day like this, Desi Doyen. <laughs> we still have the Green News Report. <laughs> the environment never stops, does it? Nope. Good. All right, that's straight ahead on the broadcast. Desi Doyen's latest Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. 
The Bratcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. After that grim, uh, what do we call it, Supreme Court oral argument, Desi Doyen, I'm sure that uh, you've got brighter news for us. Actually, I do. And historic news, too, for clean air. Really? Yes. In All in today's Green News Report. The science is clear. Soot pollution is one of the most dangerous forms of air pollution. EPA cracks down on deadly type of air pollution. January 2024 was the hottest January ever recorded on planet Earth. Plus, scientists say that climate change is creating hurricanes so strong they're literally off the charts. Hurricanes are getting so intense, scientists propose a Category 6. About time. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. These bizarre weather emergencies are just going to keep happening. We all know the cause. Al Gore warned us about this, and it's getting worse every year, so I'll just say it. The witch's curse. (laughs) (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I think the witch's curse had its uh, mitts around us down here in Southern California. (laughs) But the good news is, I think the unceasing rain over the past few days is finally done. Yes, it appears to be so. We'll see. What do you got for us today? Well, despite the United States seeing extreme cold last month, globally, January 2024 was the warmest January ever recorded since record-keeping began in the mid-1800s. That's according to preliminary data from Japan's Climate Service. If confirmed, this new hottest January marks nine straight months in a row that have set new record monthly highs. Mm. The oceans in January January also set a new record, boosted by an exceptionally strong El Nino weather pattern, and that would potentially energize the Atlantic hurricane season later this year. Potentially. Both heat records increase the odds that 2024 will surpass 2023 as the hottest year ever recorded. That's due to global warming driven by humanity's burning of fossil fuels. And the witch's curse. A new study warns that the Mediterranean Sea is warming at a faster pace than predicted and is also getting more acidic faster than predicted. The oceans absorb a significant amount of humanity's carbon emissions. That causes ocean acidification, called the evil twin of global warming, because too much CO2 literally changes the ocean's chemistry, creating conditions that corrode the shells of marine animals and coral reefs. 
So it's not the witches. No, it's not the witches. It's humanity. Oh. This week, a new study proposes adding a Category 6 to the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale to better alert the public to mega storms. The scale currently tops out with an open-ended Category 5 for wind speeds over 157 miles per hour. But the researchers show that a number of tropical cyclones since 2013 had wind speeds faster than 190. 92 miles per hour, mm-hmm. meeting their criteria for a Category 6. The researchers warn the Gulf of Mexico is at the highest risk for potential Category 6 mega hurricanes. That's if global temperatures reach 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. I'm no climate scientist, but I do recall asking a few of them about two or three years ago, hey, is it time for a Category 6? Looks like we're going to get a Cat 6. Maybe. But some good news for victims of disasters. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has a new policy. As areas rebuild after a disaster, FEMA will offer states and communities new funding to install solar panels, heat pumps, and other green upgrades as they repair public structures like schools and hospitals. Cool. That's one of the things that the Republicans want to turn back as soon as they get into the White House, right? Mm, Yep. And some positive news. The vast majority of Americans living in coastal communities support offshore wind farms. In a survey by Climate Nexus, more than two-thirds of respondents support expanding offshore wind farm construction in their own communities, including a majority of Republicans. That's despite a surge in disinformation campaigns attempting to falsely link whale deaths to offshore wind development that have been spread by right-wing media and organizations backed by the fossil fuel industry. And... Donald Trump. Finally, great news for everything that breathes. What? For the first time in more than a decade, the Biden Environmental Protection Agency this week cracked down on one of the deadliest forms of air pollution, soot. Soot is tiny particles, primarily from the burning of fossil fuels, that can penetrate deep into the lungs and bloodstream, causing heart disease, lung cancer, strokes, dementia, and other chronic illnesses. The EPA says the tighter rules required by law will prevent up to 4,500 premature deaths every year. Industry leaders are expected to challenge the new clean air standards, alleging that they'll harm economic growth. But the EPA says the standards will save $46 billion in public health costs over 10 years. That is good news. I'm just glad the historic rains are gone from California. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been... Your Green News Report. I made it through the rain. I kept my world protected. I made we it made it, does. I know. We made it through the rain. Made it through all that rain. And that was a lot of rain. That was a lot of rain. And I joked at the top of the show that, oh, we made it through the rain. Let the five-year uh, drought begin again, yes. as it does. But, uh, in fact, good news on that score, other than the rain... It has brought snow to the mountains, which is going yes. to keep us in good stead for for a while, a while? for part of the year <laughs> at least. Um, okay. d- before that, the Sierra Nevada snowpack out in California. California relies upon that Sierra Nevada snowpack for much of its water, for, especially for agriculture, during the year as it melts slowly. It's a natural reservoir. Mm-hmm. However, it has been that less than 30% of average for this entire year, even though we had that massive year last year with all of those atmospheric yeah. rivers. 
What happened to that? So the good news is that this latest b- bizarre storm, uh, it actually dumped so much snow that the snowpack is now statewide average up to 75% of normal, which is great. So Tons we'll- of water. I'm going to take a bath every night. Uh, well, yeah, you can still do that. Probably, you probably should. But uh, hey, the other hey, part about what? that is that, of course, that can melt very quickly. And that's a problem all over the country, that when you have the accumulation of snow, no matter where it is, if it gets warm really fast or if you get lots of rain for the rest of the year, the rest of the season, instead of snow, that will melt your snowpack faster and that will cause flooding for many areas as it melts faster than it's supposed to. All right. To. You know what? We ended with... Good news it's on the soot. You news, don't have to ruin it. I'm What's just telling making you, us all worry. Be about. ready just in case it does heat up because that does present problems too. Oh, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> all right. We got to get out. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and of course to my guest today, Lisa Graves of truenorthresearch.org and Keith Barber of dailycoast.com. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other we have ever done, you can download them for free anytime at brandblog.com to listen to them again, to share them with someone you know, you love, or you hate. It's all free. Thanks to those of you kind enough, and and uh, a number of you were a thank you over the past uh, week or so since we celebrated our 20th anniversary. Yes, we are now in our 21st year of blogging, broadcasting, what do we say? Muckraking and, and troublemaking and all of that. <laughs> We've made it this far, barely, thanks to you, those folks who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to keep us on your public airwaves. You can find Desi on the social media at Green News Report. Yes, come say hi. You can fi- Say hi to her. You can find me <laughs> at the Brad Blog on uh, Mastodon, Twitter, and Facebook. We will see you there. Oh, drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. We will see you at all of the above. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 